Welcome to 71% and today we have a very special guest with us who has joining us all the way from the USA at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, his name is Valde and he is one of our good friends from when we were doing our PhDs at Swansea University and he's here today to catch up with us and tell us all about his research in America and how things are going for him and hopefully sharing some really cool fish stories with us. So welcome Valder. Yeah, welcome Dr. Valder Berbel Filho, PhD. Thank you very much guys. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to see you guys again and I know that's going to be yeah. funny. You're our first guest ever. So what a pleasure! What an honor! Huh? What an honor. <laughs> You're our guinea pig, mm-hmm. basically, <laughs> to see if to see if we can actually do this. <laughs> I think Valde can tell how professional we are by the fact that I'm sitting in a tent, and we begin all our recordings by going blah 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 to make sure that all our microphones are synced. So don't expect too much. Don't tell people <laughs> about trade secrets about what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so what about Valdir? You tell us a little bit, a little brief introduction about your work and where your background, where you're from, etc. And then we'll go from there. Okay. Well, my name is Valdir. I'm a Brazilian biologist. I'm from a city called Natal in northeast Brazil. It's a tropical area, so it's quite nice and warm. I miss that now. And yeah, I did my master's in Brazil and then I moved to the UK for my PhD. But since my time in Brazil was, I've been always fascinated with fish since I was like seven. And I actually managed to study my professionally as being a biologist. And then during my master, I got very, very excited about understanding phenotypic plasticity mainly. I was fascinated by this idea that one genetic background could generate several phenotypes and how this was related to the environment. And it was funny because at the same time that I was I was interested in phenotypic plasticity, I my my people in my lab were looking to this weird fish on the mangroves in our area called the mangrove killifish. And then I started joining them for field trips, and then I ended up in doing my PhD in in Swansea, working with them. I'm gonna tell a bit more about these fascinating fishes. Now I'm I'm now in um, Oklahoma, also working with weird fishes. I don't know how to define myself, but I seem to be the guy who likes weirdly reproducing fish. <laughs> That's a pretty good definition. <laughs> so Valdir was our colleague. We the three of us did our PhD at Swansea University in Wales at the same time, so we became good friends. And yeah, and Valdir was known for anything related to weird animal sex (laughs) things. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so so your main focus, Valdir, is reproductive ecology of fishes. Can I say that? It's mainly, I would say as well, it's all, everything's so integrated, right? But I would... I'm very interested about many things that are related both to the origin of different reproductive systems and also to the consequences of those. So looking at how different reproductive systems interfere in the ecology and the interaction between sympatric species, how they interfere in the level of genetic structure that you're expected to find across different mating systems and how they originated basically. In vertebrates, it seems like all the unusual uh, sexual systems like a sexuality they came from 
uh, hybridization events. So from fish to, to frogs and lizards, all are hybrid species. So that's more, more the kind of research that I'm doing at my postdoc now in Oklahoma. That sounds so fun. Okay, so for those who... For those who don't know, what are hybrid fishes? What are what is hybridization and sympatric species? Can you just quickly? Okay, so uh, so sympatric species is a very fancy term to say that species that live together, and then you have more specific like definitions. But it's it's just thinking about species that you can find usually at the same place at the same time. Cool. So they are called sympatric in biology. And hybridization is basically when you when these when two species uh, are capable of reproducing and they generate uh, offspring. Okay, so I guess an example could be like in zoos where you have lions and tigers together at the same time. That's not natural, but you see that in zoos, and they try to get them to mate with each other and produce ligers and things like that. Would that be an example or? Well, they have this crazy, this, they have the liger, they have the, I don't, I, I think I'm wrong, but they have something, the <laughs> so it depends on the direction of the hybridization, and they call, they call different names, yeah, in, but there are some, some animals that were quite, for example, donkeys, are donkeys actually hybrids, is that right, uh, Laura, do you remember that? Yeah, the donkey is a hybrid, I think, between a, between a horse and a mule, or is that the other way around? I never know. <laughs> we have to okay. we have to to figure out that. <laughs> but the, these are these are examples of what you're talking about, right? Except you're looking at it in fish. Yes. Yes. So. Okay. So my the group that I am in from Doctor Slup Lab, Slup Lab is is a group that he has been work with life bearing fishes. So fishes that are most most of the fishes they lay eggs. But in this case, these fish, uh-huh. they, they are viviparous, so they have, they, they originate, they give birth to embryos, a bit like mammals. Some of them actually have placenta, so people use these fishes. What? This group of fishes are modeled for understanding the evolution of placentas that emerged in fish and also in mammals. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so it's cool. It's pretty cool. And are the there other species that, of fishes that have placenta? Yes. Yes. Placenta has originated... Mi- I mean, it's, it's easy to think that placenta has originated multiple times in, in viviparous species because it's just like you have this bunch of eggs that are, that are together, a group of eggs that fertilize at the same time. And then in some species, they are still isolated eggs and some species have this organ that's cover all the eggs at the same time and they develop within. So that's basically a placenta. Okay, a very... Simplified version of a placenta. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the, the interactions between the mo- the mother and the offspring. And uh, what's also special about this group is this also happens in few groups of fish, but this particular family, the light-bearing fishes, the pecilids, they have internal fertilization. So males have this uh, modified fins that they call it gonopodium. So and they internally fertilize the females. So this. It's a particular group that lots of specific things have emerged that emerge in all the vertebrates but not in fish. So it's quite a... Uh, it's, the, it's the group where you find popular popular fish like guppies, mollies, fish that are common for acquiring in aquariums that people are quite usually very familiar with. Yeah, yeah. You usually see them in the pet shops, right? Lots of different colors yeah. and all swimming around. And so that that's really interesting because like... 
a lot of the fish that I work with, when they have sex, it all happens externally. The females release their eggs and the males release their milts and then it all mixes together and that's how the babies are made. But you're saying that the fish you work with, they kind of are more similar to, to what we're familiar with as mammals and the, the male inserts his sperm inside the female and then she develops babies inside of her, which is super interesting. And they have... They have another thing called it. Uh, it's a, a bit specific. It's called a superfetation. So the f- it's very interesting. This the whole system is very interesting. Superfetation is is something called like when you can have different embryos at different developing times in the same female. So she can give birth to some to some babies, but it still have babies inside her. That's like this is wow. this rarely <laughs> happens in humans, but sometimes happens. Wow, that's amazing. Very, very productive yeah. fish. <laughs> uh, by the way, the mule is the is the hybrid between the donkey and a horse. Thanks. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The donkey is not hybrid. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, yeah. F- Facts checking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so within the context of hybridization and sympathy and all of these things that cool things that fish can do that I personally had no idea, like having a placenta. Uh, (laughs) Can you put that into an environmental context? Where can we find these fishes? Is there any kind of trouble that they're going through in terms of environmental issues? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, of course. So the live-bearing fish in general, they are quite widespread in... They like tropical environments, so they're most found in warm, warm places in the South US, Central America, and South America. And in terms of threats, I would say that they're, they're usually when you, I mean, it varies, of course, with the species, but usually when you find them, they are, they are quite numerous. So they are these species that they don't grow that big, uh, too big. They have a very fast uh, generation time. For example, a good example is guppies that you started uh, acquiring with one male and, and one female and suddenly you have a hundred babies. And <laughs> like gremlins. And they, some of the species are quite <laughs> resistant, to be honest. And I, I'm going to be talking about guppies all the time because guppies is, within this group, is the model species. So it's everything basically that is applied for the other species is known from guppies. And guppies are known to be quite resistant to environmental threats like pollution. So you go to some, some places, uh, in my experience in Brazil, you go to places that you wouldn't imagine to have fish in freshwater bodies and rivers, and then you find guppies. And also, and also some other weird, like the mangrove fishes. Okay, so these animals that you're mentioning so far, they are all freshwater fish. Mostly, right? yeah, mostly, and some mostly. of them they they can they can survive and actually thrive in brackish waters, so mangroves and kind of mouth of river areas, mm-hmm. and it's it's pretty cool because they also been used as a system for biogeography because some species can be found in islands and people try to have investigate how they got there. Some of them were introduced by humans. Some of them were actually dispersed naturally. So it's, it's, it's a system for several, several interesting questions, I think. Sounds super cool. So <clears throat> obviously, we know you best from when you were doing your PhD research at Swansea, and that was on the mangrove killifish. From what I remember, they're quite different in terms of uh, how they reproduce compared to the guppies and the, the mollies. So maybe you could tell us a bit about those weird little critters. 
It's my favorite. I don't know if you guys see it, but I actually have a tattoo now of mangrove glyphs. Really? Yeah. So <laughs> I did after my PhD. I, 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 I'm wearing long sleeves, but... Oh, it's so oh. cool. It's <laughs> um, a big one. It's much bigger than the actual animal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to, to give the impression that there were these huge fish. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they would be pleased if they saw it. <laughs> well... Well, mangrove fishes are my favorite. They are just fascinating uh, and very tough fish. So, as Ben just mentioned, they're quite unique. They they live in mangrove areas in the Western Atlantic, so from Florida, Central America to South Brazil, basically. And there are three species that we call the mangrove killifishes, but two of them are the only known species that are capable of self-fertilization. So, self-fertilization is... When individuals have to be hermaphrodites, and when it is male and female, and they are able to self-fertilize. So self-fertilization, although at the long term has similar evolutionary consequences to a sexuality, self-fertilization is still sexual, but it's within a single individual. Sometimes I, I, I get these questions that people, oh, but are they asexual? I say no. To be asexual, you don't have to have a recombination and mixing between different gametes. Sexual, they do. So uh, self-fertilization is a sexual way of reproducing. But the long-term evolutionary uh, implications of that is just they, how can I say that? They they produce at the long term like clones. And this is kind of similar to a sexual system. But they are fascinating fish. Despite of self-fertilization, sometimes they can outcross. And so some individuals become males and then they have the normal outcrossing between hermaphrodites and males. So uh, mangrove killifishes is a system that I am fascinated about it, and I, for a long term, I would love to to keep researching on that. Sounds like killifish can be all colors of the rainbow. <laughs> oh, all of them, yeah. Definitely. You have all the whole spectrum. That's so cool. And I remember, sorry, I was just going to say, I remember one of my best memories of your research was when you gave a research talk and you were using the uh, Baratheon family from Game of Thrones as a <laughs> as a as an analogy of how animals that are inbreeding might be doing better than animals that are outbreeding. So it's a, it's a really cool way to think about your research. I really like that. Yes, I was, we are very, we are, as I said, we're interested of how individuals of low genetic variation can, can thrive, basically. And at the time I was, you'd force me to watch Game of Thrones and now I, <laughs> And at the time I say like this is this is the crypto levels, this is the mangrove fishes. So I have to use this analogy to explain yeah. what's known about inbreeding. So because self-fertilization is actually the most extreme form of inbreeding. Uh-huh. But how do how does it work then? Is it external fertilization or internal? In this case, it's internal. So it's very it's very funny because like the hermaphrodites, they self-fertilize internally. But when they sometimes outcross with males, that's externally. So uh, when the in these little fishes and killifishes in general, the, it seems like the breeding behavior. I'm saying, I'm saying very generally because we don't know much at the species level, but very generally, the male tends to stimulate the female. In this case, the hermaphrodites, and then the hermaphrodites lay eggs. What I imagine that happens on the mangrove killifishes is that when the males show up, they choose the the male is the choosing sex on this on this system. They choose the hermaphrodites that they have to mate with. They stimulate the hermaphrodites, and the hermaphrodites lay eggs. But most of the eggs are fertilized already. 
quite a few are not. And then those are the ones who, that the male managed to fertilize. And this generates a huge boom of, of genetic diversity on the system. Okay, so let's pretend I'm a killifish. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm fertile. I want to, to have babies. Yes. So uh, at the moment... You can I do it am, yourself. I, I, I can do it myself. <laughs> yeah. At the moment, I am both male and female. So yeah. I'm going to self-fertilize. Mm -hmm. And boom, okay, I have fertile eggs inside me. Yeah. Uh, some time passes by. I, I lay those eggs. And I see another male, and I want to, to cross with that male because he looks good. He looks you know, like a fine <laughs> specimen. So I can change into just the female, or do I continue to be uh, hermaphrodite? You continue to, to be hermaphrodite, but okay. this time it's just, it's, just the, it's just more like the type of eggs that you lay when you are mm. with the male. Okay. So I go and I stimulate this male, and then I uh, I lay my eggs. He fertilizes the the eggs. Yes. So that's scenario two. What would be a scenario three that I fertilize another female's eggs? Uh, yeah, that's an important point actually. Uh, as far as we know, hermaphrodites cannot cross among each other. When there is crossing on the system, it's only between males and hermaphrodites, and this okay. is a different system that happens to snails, for example, that the snails, some snails, at the moment of, of breeding, they decide who is going to have the male role, who's going to have the female role. <laughs> and it's pretty cool. But I wonder in, how they decide. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. So, have you heard about the dart, uh, uh, how they call the po uh, the love darts that some snails have? So No, but I want to know. <laughs> yeah. If I remember this correctly, two snails and aphrodites meet together, and one of them, or the two of them, try to kind of poison each other with the love darts. It's like it's a bomb of hormone that kind of decides who is going. It's actually a shooting thing. So it, <laughs> and this, this, this. Uh, I don't know if what happens biologically speaking. If this makes one individual produce more, more or less sperm, and that's gonna be the male or female. And then that's how they do. And then they meet and then they, they, they cross. So they shoot each other with poison to decide yeah, who's love, going love, to be the male. They, it's actually called love darts. Oh, sorry. So they <laughs> shoot each other it. with love dart poison to decide who's going to be the male. And then they just, they just get on with it after that. <laughs> yeah. Cupid. Yeah. Yeah, like Cupid. Okay, so back to the killifish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have any idea, so what is the advantage for for their survival and their evolution to, to be like that? And is that anything that you've been able to relate between this reproductive behavior and characters to the environments where they are? Like mangroves are very specific kind of aquatic environments, right? There's this whole dynamic... This whole uh, specialities and characters that you have to have to survive. Sometimes it's anoxic. Sometimes there's very little water or very little oxygen. So is there anything that you've made any connections between this reproductive biology and their environments? That's a great question. Uh, the actual system that we're talking about is called mixed mating. So Sometimes, as I said, sometimes individuals are able to outcross, but they're mostly self-fertilized. And this happens in plants a lot. But for the mangrove killifish itself, this is a system that we call sometimes the best of both worlds. As they live in this very specific environment, actually, they, 
the place that you find mangrove killifish is usually you don't have any other fish around. So it seems that they are the only fish to manage to survive in this kind of micro mangrove habitats with, as you said, highly toxic, low oxygen levels. And what seems to like that the theory predicts is being able to self-fertilize, you assure reproduction, right? So in an environment that's hard to find a lot of uh, heavily available mating, it's better to assure reproduction than not reproducing at all. So this is one of the advantages of, of self-fertilization. But at the same time, as you self-fertilize, you, you become an easy target for your antagonistics, things like uh, predators or, or parasites, for example. Because there is this whole theory that, that parasites co-evolve to, to, to face their hole, to bait their hosts, and why are the hosts co-evolve to beat their parasites? The general the red, red queen. queen, yeah. And basically, at the same time that your sure reproduction is selfing, sometimes occasional crossing generates the variability that you needed, basically, that they, you needed for facing uh, co-evolving uh, antagonists. So, talking more specifically about the mangrove killifishes, one of the research that we have done in the in Swansea was actually looking at parasite loads, uh, at the parasites that individuals that came from outcrossing events versus individuals that came from selfing events. Mm -hmm. And genetically, there's a way to tell how long ago the last outcrossing event happened for that specific individual based on the amount of genetic variation that individual has. And we correlated this to the amount of, of, of parasites that the individual had. And it seems to have, uh, now it seems to be quite established, both in snails and also in the mangrove killifishes, is individuals that came for a most recent outcrossing event seem to have lower parasite loads. So it's... It's correlational, but it's a good indication, suggestion that mm -hmm. occasional outcrossing generates the variability to deal with the parasites that are at the moment beating the host. So it's, it's mm -hmm. this fine balance, but uh, that's it's so cool. That's super cool. So, yeah. so, so finding a male and, and uh, outcrossing and swapping DNA with a male means that your offspring are likely to have a better chance at fighting off parasites. If you're yes. a snail or if you're a, a mangrove killifish. <laughs> exactly. Wow. That's cool because usually you don't think about how reproductive biology can affect other parts of the biology of, of an animal, uh, like parasites and predation and things like that. Uh, but because diversity comes from reproduction and from different kinds of crossing and between similar or between clones or within the same individual, all of these things will, uh, will have this ripple effect into the whole biology, even their death, which is super cool. And one thing that's very interesting that was found from uh, uh, Sonia Consuegas, like my previous supervisor, it was not my, my research, but was still on mangrove killifishes. In this system, the males are the sex to choose, it seems to choose the different hermaphrodites. It's usually, it's usually the way around that people think about, about uh, sexual selection. It's usually sexual selections, the females choose and the males fight. But this is, this is something that varies across groups a lot. And on the mangrove killifishes, it seems like when the males show up, that we, that's, that's the big question, that we don't know the mechanism that makes an individual become male. That's the one million dollar question. <laughs> but when the males show up, they choose the hermaphrodites that genetically is most dissimilar from him as possible. So it's kind of, it's kind of suggesting even more that the sex 
the, the crossing that they do is for generating variability. Because if you cross with someone that's very similar to you, it's probably that you're not generating variability enough for your offspring. So this is called like this is officially called like negative assortative mating. So when you when you when an individual prefer to uh, to mate with another individual that's as most dissimilar as possible from him. So I have a question, and I'm not yeah. sure I'm not sure if there'll be an answer to it. Um, but how how does the male know who's the least dissimilar to him? Does he have like a Tinder profile and he <laughs> he looks at the distance? Or... Ah, and now we have a connection to our episode on fish recognition, recognition because he needs to know how he looks before he can tell how the other one looks. <laughs> well, this is a very good question that I, I as you said, I don't know if I know the answer, but. Uh... Lots of the research that has been looking at how individuals recognize each other have been looking at the variability of the immune system, the MHC genes that you have, and how these are related to hormone, uh, uh, how do you call it, release. Okay. And it seems like it's, it seems like that's that's quite the way that the on this specific research I'm talking about the how similar or dissimilar the individuals were from each other were measured by the MAC type uh, genes that they have, the, this particular immune genes. And this, there is research on that on humans that said that the, some, I don't know how valid this is research any longer, but looking at the people tend to choose or prefer individuals that have a different MAC type from them, and this was based on smell. Uh, uh, yeah. So- so what you're saying is Tinder would be much better if instead of uploading pictures, people uploaded their smell. That so would that, be perfect, So that we yeah. can see how different we are to one another. And that, that would be ben, beneficial. Ben, ben, but you're making a big mistake. Tinder is not about reproduction, dude. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> You could make a you could you could make an evolutionary version of Tinder and, and just putting smells and things like that. You can tell how often I, I use dating apps then. <laughs> <laughs> and it is yeah. it is very fascinating on you know, the as I said, like as you have most self fertilization, you have several selfie lines sharing this this tiny, tiny little micro habitats. And they compete a lot. And one of the other fascinating things about the mangrove killifishes that I, I found it amazing that is one of the few species some birds are capable of, but it's some of the one of the few species that I know of that's capable to identify individ, uh, kinship relationships at the embryo level, at the egg level. So one one mama, one killifish mama <laughs> can tell if that egg is from her, from someone that's related to her, or for someone else very different from her. Uh, and there is that's let's go to the dark side of the force now uh, there is a lot of cannibalism and uh, people have have seen that cannibalism uh, propensity changes across selfie lineage so according to kinship so uh, individuals tend to eat individuals that are most unrelated to them and mostly eggs and uh, that's that's amazing research that came from new university from Guelph from Patricia Wright Ben that actually figured out that uh, egg cannibalism changes across selfie lineages and mangrove killifishes tend to eat more eggs that are mostly similar from them as possible. Ah, I've seen the mangrove killifish lab and I I wondered what they were doing in there. I I, I walked past it on the corridor and there's a big sign saying mangrove killifish and I thought, oh, what are they doing in there? So now we know they're looking at how the 
eggs are eaten by the different mothers. That's one of the few things. They, they, uh, the grouping elf is really into the... Oh, another thing. Mangrove clayfishes are amphibious, so they're actually classified as amphibious. They can live out of water for quite a long period of time. There are imports of two months out of water. I mean, it's not in a completely dry environment, but what? it's a, yeah, <laughs> in a moist environment. So people at, at the Gulf University, as far as I, I am familiar with, they they tend to investigate this, the physiological changes that came with these amphibious habits in fish using the mangrove killifish as a model. But let's go back to the cannibalism. Yeah. <laughs> so so they, they eat like... more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they eat more their their kin on the contrary oh okay so they they so it's kind of like a, a mafia thing like ma- never go against your family kind yeah of yeah, yeah. They it, can protect exactly. their own but they, they don't care about the other families uh, okay and what this research has shown as well is that different lineages they have different ways to identify uh the eggs some of them just look and tell this is my a mama in a particular lineage the mama can tell Okay, this is my egg. I'm not gonna eat that. Some lions, they did, they smell, so they bite, and they if if they're gonna eat, they eat. They swallow. If they're not gonna eat, they just release it back. Some of them need the visual, the smell, and the touch. So it is also the the way that you identify eggs according to the kinship varies across the the selfing lineages. Wow. But it, in terms of population or genetics, then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not very. It's not very good that they're doing that because they're reducing the genetic, the gene pool within the population, right? I think you would. For me, that's why I thought it was the other way around. Because for me, it would make sense. It sounds horrible, but it would make <laughs> sense for the mamas to eat their own because it would be some kind of like higher level, populational species level way of controlling for inbreeding and this, this kind of problems that you can have when you have low genetic variability. So it's interesting that that's kind of happening on the other direction. Yeah, this this is where your family starts to get very worried now, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> there is this, uh, you, you're right, there is this is counterintuitive to think about it, but there is this fine balance between the ecology of an individual and the long-term survival of the species, right? So mm-hmm. in an environment where the the... The resources are so scarce and so hard to find actually food. Cannibalism is one of the way is one of the main source of food, and then they have the mes- this mechanism of saying, "Okay, if someone is to survive here, is to be related to me." Of course, yes. And, and the other the other things, yeah, I'm just competing with them. But then this whole mess, this whole system is broken when outcrossing between self-lineages happens, and then. And if either the, uh, some eggs that were not longer related to you are actually halfway related to you. So this can be a bit more complex than, than it sounds. But it, it's just, I, sometimes I imagine living in a, a crab burrow and having this Game of Thrones life that mangrove killifish <laughs> have. It's just about war and, and, and sex, basically. Way before Game of Thrones, there were the telenovelas, the Mexican soap operas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I think, but it's super I think, cool, and I just want to make a point where people think that fish are boring and they just swim from here and there, and they don't have complex relationships or weird sex. No, so you can see, you know, you can have a whole, you know, um, interesting whole drama, gossip, drama, yeah, yeah. an epic it, drama based on the the 
mangrove killifish in there. Antics. Netflix. Netflix. Here's a tip, huh? Yeah. You should produce a series on killifish. Sponsorship. <laughs> is, this, is this just one? I'm, we're focused just one example, but fish is, in my opinion, is just the best uh, group of vertebrates to investigate this whole spectrum. I'm, I, I mentioned before that mangrove killifishes kind of live on the best of all worlds. They sometimes outcross, sometimes uh, self. And now, and it's funny because my my change from my PhD to the postdoc made me still working with or for weird reproducing fish, but on the worst side of, of the of the spectrum. So the species that I work here that we are trying to investigate is origin, I call the Amazon mollies. The Amazon mollies not because they came from the Amazon, it's just because the, the, the general name comes from the Amazon tribe, the legendary Amazon tribe that is only composed by females. So the Amazon mollies are all, comp- all, all composed only by females, but they still require the sexual costs. So they still require sperm from heterospecific males, from males from a different species. But what is funny about it is the genetic material of the father, of the, of the male, is not incorporated on the, on the offspring. So she just used the sperm... It's actually called sperm parasitism. She just used the sperm to trigger the embryos to develop, but the, the individuals are cloned. So the offspring is exactly 100% as the, <laughs> as, the, as, the, as the mother. I think we need to be very careful with the questions we ask about that system. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, how does the, uh, the male fish feel about this? <laughs> Makes... <laughs> well, one of, the, one, of the, is one of the big questions on this whole system, this system is called gynogenesis. When when uh, females are able to reproduce asexually, but it still it still need uh, sperm input from heterospecific males, and one of the questions is like in this in the little environment that they live, think about think of being a male in that environment. You have a female of your own species that you contribute genetically to the offspring, and you have a female of a different species that mating with her, in theory, you don't contribute with anything. But then what research from my lab here shown is there is a is a I don't know I don't know how specific is this the term, but it's basically showing that the males who mate who mate with the Amazon mollies, they are watched by the females of their own sex, of their own species. <laughs> wait, 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 we're getting into kinky territory. <laughs> this is where the podcast gets taken off the air. <laughs> so, so, let me yeah. just say if I understood that. So mm-hmm. you have the Amazon mollies. Yeah. They're, they're all ladies. Yeah. And they, in order to reproduce, they need to have intimate relations with the male fish of different species. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's bad for the male because he's not having any children. It's all being done by the Amazon molly. But what maybe, you're saying... Maybe it's not that bad for them. But what, just... Yeah, so what you're saying is that the females of his species are watching him being intimate with the Amazon Molly and thinking, ooh, I, I quite fancy pairing with him. Is that is that correct? <laughs> it's exactly, ooh. <laughs> it's, it's a good description, exactly. It seems like the the males who mate with Amazon Mollies are more attractive to the females of its own species. Wow, that opens up it a seems, whole can of worms. <laughs> it seems like, it's, it's a mechanism that seems like, the, it's... I don't know if this is called a handicap, but it's something that says like, look, I'm good enough to deal with this and I can deal with her. 
with you, Ella. So it's, it, that's the behavioral, the behavioral research that people have been doing in my lab here, that they look that the males who mate with Amazon volleys are preferred by ma- females of some species. Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> What, what is interesting, I, I didn't mention anything about the other species that I'm talking about. So there, there are two main species where the Amazon mollies meet. One of them is called the Atlantic molly. They are sexual. And the sailfin molly, there is also sexual. And these are the parental species where the hybridization originally happened and generated the Amazon mollies. Oh. So Amazon mollies, they don't exist anywhere else where there is no coin-specific, heterospecific uh, uh, males to mate with, because they can just not survive at the long term. That's the system that we're investigating. We're investigating how this original hybridization happened, if it was just one big jump and the F1 was the Amazon molly, or if this was a, a step-by-step, if there is a, a hybridization first and then the F1s, the, the offspring, breed to each other, and this lead you from sexuality to a sexuality. Wow. So it's like a love mystery of, okay, these two species at some point, they found each other attractive, but you don't know when or why or who. So that's what you're trying to figure out with, with your studies. That's so cool. <laughs> and what is really unique, what is particularly unique about this system is we know that there are sexual, uh, sexual vertebrates. They are, they are mostly originated from hybridization events. But in, most, in many cases, the original parental species are gone, are extinct. In this case, the, the original parental species, the one that originated the Amazon body, are still around. And we, we, we even know what is the most likely population where this hybridization happened at first place. It seems to be in a place called uh, Tampico in Mexico. And we know we have here in the lab populations from this original parental species. It's really cool. Yeah, oh so I'm now on this, trying to investigate this whole mystery of basically how Amazon volleys have been, have originated and what are the phenotypic changes. It was a step-by-step uh, process. It was a, a big jump. And the genomic changes that required from being sexual to asexual. Could they go back to asexual? Could they go back to having males? Is that possible? Sometimes some males of the Amazon mollies are reported. Sometimes they, they, they appear. And also, I, this incorporation of the genetic material from the males, sometimes it's not 100% uh, incomplete. Sometimes bits of the male get into the female. And this generates all kinds of weirds of like triploid uh, Amazon mollies. Mm. It could be, it seems like more often than we thought, parts of the parental, of the male genome gets incorporated into the Amazon mollies. And that's a good, thinking about uh, sex as a way to generate variability, that's a good thing that sometimes you also incorporate bits of the, of another, of DNA from another species, basically. Okay, well, (laughs) my brain is a bit like trying to understand everything. I knew some of these things from, of course, because I I know you from from a while back, but some of these things were completely new. So thanks for for that. And I'm assuming that most people who are going to listen to this, they're going to be shocked and gasping. I hope so. The intimate sex lives of fish. Yeah. I was was going to tell this very funny story that so Ben once set up a, a... So in Wales, there was this meeting called the Wing, 
about the about the the with the Welsh universities, four or five Welsh universities, and when we meet, there is a, a pub quiz, and then <laughs> that's how weird I am. Ben <laughs> Ben uh, generate this quiz that was related to animal genitalia. And at the time I was studying a human ev uh, uh, evolution of sex and reading everything about it. And all the books, they have these classic events, uh, examples like weird genitalia in different systems of animals mainly. And then the, the, the part of the quiz was like several uh, images, 10 images, if I'm not mistaken, from different animal genitalia. <laughs> and then I sat within my group and they were supposed to be inter very integrative. So you're not supposed to be in the same in the group with people from the same unit. So I didn't basically I didn't know anyone. <laughs> and then I look at the, at the, uh, the, uh, the sheets, uh, the paper sheet, and I say, like, OK, this is a duck. This is a hyena. This is a barnacle. <laughs> this is an octopus. And people look at me and say, like, you are weird. <laughs> so sorry. Who's this creep? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got it right. We got most of them right. <laughs> Just as a disclaimer, all the genitalia were definitely animal genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. This is a biology, uh, biology related quiz. It wasn't just a random pub quiz. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we've learned so much today. We've learned about asexual fish. And hermaphrodites, and we've learned about kinky fish, kinky fish, and love darts, and <laughs> and, and fish that are cheating with males of other species in order to to keep themselves going. So, I guess it really shows that there's so much diversity in fish, even fish that are somewhat similar to each other. And yeah, diversity yeah. in sex seems to be a good thing. hundred percent agree. <laughs> okay so let's wrap it up because it's it's yeah it's getting pretty long uh so thank you valdir for being here with us as our first guest guest of honor Yay. because you're a very good friend of ours um and congratulations for your research it's been yeah you've been doing some really cool stuff so interesting uh, it's it's a good sign where you can get plant biologists really interested in in fish sex. <laughs> uh, and of course, Ben is suspicious because he works with fish behavior, but uh, for my field, it's completely different. So it, it's, it really catches my attention. And yeah, so thank you for sharing. Hopefully people will also, I think I'm sure that people will also enjoy this, this chat and they can follow you. You have a website, right? I, if they want to know more about you. Yeah, research. I have a, a Twitter Accounts, it's Bebel Filho, and my, all my information is that like my website, and I mean you can you yeah. can find. It was my pleasure, guys. It was very nice to see you again, and you know that I'm very excited about this fish. So <laughs> sorry for being a bit weird, but we'll this fish is just amazing. We'll definitely link your Twitter and everything in the episode notes so that yeah. people can find you and learn more about the weird and wonderful world of fish sex. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thank you. All right, Ben, do you want to do the sign-off? We could get Valder to do the sign-off. So our, our, yeah. our, our sign-off is, until next time, we'll catch you downstream. Okay. So that's you, Should I say it? Yeah, go for it. Until next time, we catch you downstream. Yay! <laughs> 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 that was so good. Blah, 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 blah